Hey, what's up, Nilesh? How's it going? Hey, Joe. Thanks. Uh, I'm good. How are you? Good. Doing very well. So, hey, before the show, we were just talking about uh, you, you went on uh, some trips. So, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. So, yeah, it was fun. Went to Thailand and Bali for uh, like 10 days uh, just to relax. It was fun. It's such a relaxing time to get over there. So, yeah. it's so cool. Yeah, but you're back in the States, I guess. So, uh, we'll uh, <laughs> back in podcast mode and work mode. So, um that's cool for for the for the audience who doesn't uh, know who you are. Do you do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah, certainly. Um, I am Nilesh. Um, I'm a staff software engineer currently at uh, DBT. Uh, I work mostly inside uh, our org, which is responsible for um, building the adapter experience in our cloud um, offering. So basically, looking at the open source adapters and community adapters, and making sure they are positioned well in our cloud and how to create that experience for customers, making sure that is uh, that is smooth and we have uh, the right interfaces. And so I recently joined that team uh, not too long ago. And prior to that, I was mostly doing some architecture work and sort of cross-functional team. And my background is distributed systems, this um, product engineering, software engineering. Uh, so I don't necessarily call myself a data engineer, but I'm sort of in that realm of data engineer, data software engineer kind of a thing. So the longest I spent was at Stitch Fix where I did a lot of like Spark, Hive, Iceberg, a lot of data problems, the data, metadata, data quality, solving those kind of larger issues. And uh, and yeah, it's um it's been it's been a unique journey. So happy to talk about that. But yeah, it's um I've learned a lot of my career. So it's uh, I'm slowly now just trying to learn right and like sort of trying to put pay that forward and help people out who are starting on that journey. Really cool. And, and it's one of these things I feel like with uh, back in the day with uh, software engineering, um, you know, it was implicitly data engineering, but it wasn't called that. Right. So I, I would consider you whatever a data engineer is now. I mean, I, I define it a certain way in my book, but it's, um, you know, if you're working with distributed systems with, with large amounts of data, I would say you're smack dab in the middle of whatever data engineering kind of became. But, you know, it's it's, it's all terminology. At the end of the day, you're just doing the job you're hired for, given the tools you had. So it's, um, it's pretty cool. I mean, what were some of the, um, the I guess, progressions of practices or, or tools that you saw when you got into distributed systems to today? Yeah, it was, it's been a... The, the appropriate word is for progression because I've seen these tools mature from when I started my career. So this was mid-2014 when I joined my first job at Cloudera, which was sort of a collection of a lot of tooling that they had offering for their enterprise customers. And so it had open source tooling that was, you name it, MapReduce, Hive, Impala. You had a lot of those. Um, they used to joke around it was a zoo of animals in terms of the products, but it was it was all of that bundled up into a product experience for the customers. And so I work very closely there with one large customer and make sure they're okay and operations are handled. So it's very like closer to sales and like a very technical role where you had to be mindful of things and breaking in the larger distributed systems. So that gave me a sort of sense of how to think of things at scale, things to think of what would break in in those larger systems, what are the risks, and even having following the best practices. So I used to connect with the team that I was helping out with and making sure they're okay, they have any upcoming problems, if they had new new product feature interests, those kinds of things. And so the, the difference between then and now is those products were less mature they were early use case when I saw them. Like Spark was a baby. Uh, like people used, were excited about it, but didn't know how to use it properly, and nobody right. did. And that it's not it's not them to blame, but it's how the industry progressed. Like a, a new technology takes time to adapt and mature, and so Spark and all of these patterns were emerging. And even data engineering is sort of a relatively newer term. I, I don't know yeah. when it was exactly coined, but I didn't hear it back then, and it was not a thing. Uh, even data science came soon after some a few years after I, I sort of started my career. Right. And so now we're hearing more of data engineering, which kind of, I think, encapsulate the encapsulate anything data. So I sort of see myself fitting in like the platform and infrastructure piece of that. So I think it's a catch-all title at this point. Like if you're dealing with data, you're a data engineer. 
It seems to be. I mean, I, I think it was uh, Maxime Bouchemin uh, who maybe I think was first coining the term. I know he had the article, um, you know, about data engineering back was it 2017? I'd like to think. I could be wrong on that, but you know, and I'd heard the term sort of thrown out, but it really wasn't a thing because it was either like you were a software engineer that was working with data, or you were a data scientist who was trying to work with data to, you know, to satisfy, I guess, the uh, the old trope that data scientists spend 80, 90% of their time getting data and cleaning it and so forth. So that was how I got into it. I mean, I had to do it to get do, do my job. Um, you know, my background's more in ML and analytics and so forth. But uh, I got into data engineering because there was nobody else who was going to do it for me. So I mean, so it, you could approach it from either way. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. And I feel it. But it's not like data science where data science was um, a, a kind of a catch-all term that, you know, I think started with ML and kind of gravitated towards including anything that touched data, you know, um, more from maybe an end user perspective. So yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how terms, you know, come into the scene and change and so forth. Now, I think that the latest conversation of the week is whether ML ops and ML engineering is just data engineering in disguise. And I don't know. So it's like, and most of these comes from uh, like how much of the work you have to do and the, the tooling that's built around you. And yeah, and, I have a different perspective in this because I, I was not the person who's writing the jobs and writing the actual ETL to make these uh, effects, but I was pro providing the framework and the infrastructure to support that. So I didn't write Spark jobs, but I built the ecosystem around that you can be successful with Spark. So that was right. that was my sort of foray into the into the distributed systems on the user level, where I was providing that experience and giving the the customers essentially these frameworks that are that are beastly enough that they they need a lot of abstraction. They need a lot of um, hiding away a lot of the craft because the infrastructure pieces are complicated. The the code itself, the APIs are complicated. So making sure it's easy for them to give them examples, give them documentation, give them easy access to these things and making sure they're successful. I think that's where I my perspective has come in over the last like five, six years that oh, you have to build these tools for them to be successful. And then right. when, when they do it, then then it's up to their ownership, their what use cases they're solving. But you give them enough that they can just sort of run wild with it. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And, and kind of fast forwarding to, you know, you work at DBT now, like, you know, DBT has got a very interesting model where there's, uh, I think, an awesome open source ecosystem. And then there's the, you know, the, the, the SaaS cloud version. I mean, how do you how do you balance uh, that sort of tension between, you know, I, I think what is arguably one of the most awesome open source projects there is and one of the most popular ones uh, versus trying to satisfy the requirements of, it, of an enterprise product. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it tension, especially like it's mostly like the 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 community is pretty large, like they're very passionate about the the open source product, the, the product itself. And taking that energy and the sort of understanding how we can build that experience on the cloud, that's where it pretty much goes with every open source company, uh, how you build that experience that they can take advantage of the, the, the open source project in a, in a cloud setting where they can, they can deploy it at their own company. And so doing that is the hard part, like understanding that experience, how to build those soft piece, key pieces of differentiation, if you will. And that's where success lies in my view for any open source company that you, can you build that differentiation? Can you make people, use it in a way that is meaningful to them and give them the power to do those things. So again, it comes down to the tooling aspect of it. So I see it in that way mm -hmm. as I do product engineering versus data infrastructure building. I think of, can we build that experience for customers that they can come in and take the full advantage of the DBT core that they are familiar with and uh, have it in a team setting where they can do things like collaborate between the teams, manage it better. There's uh, the whole aspect of GitHub is is in like GitHub and GitLab and the other like sort of versioning and version control kind of a semantic there. So that makes sense for them to collaborate between their teams. There are multiple orgs that can use it. So that aspect doesn't come from just the native uh, open source package. That comes from an actual product that builds like mm. SSO into it. There's uh, there's a lot of different aspects that go to making a cloud product successful. And so how do you give that to a team? What do they need? Listen to their feedback, listen to their sort of um, any kind of product requests, any kind of bug requests. All of that sort of feeds in into how you think about um, continuing to deliver for your customers. 
Interesting. I mean, I, I can imagine with something like DBT as well. It's, it's super popular. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of requests. Like, how do you how do you curate and sort of triage uh, um, the requests and prioritize them? We we have a stellar group of um, product managers who do that very effectively. So there is always a pulse check with the community. There's um, there's requests we hear from the customers. It comes through various channels, maybe like partner sales. There's like different funnels where it comes through. And then how it comes into engineering, and I'm, I'm not sure this is different from every other company, but inside right. we we then prioritize based on like quarterly planning, yearly planning, and make sure the high priority items get addressed. And then we have themes of okay, we're, we're solving this, we're solving this particular issue, and those those things line up underneath those themes. And so um, I think I think it's important to have the community behind us. The it tends to help you improve your product. It also gives you a sort of level check. Okay, am I doing something right? Am I doing something wrong? And that um, I see all of those channels really valuable for us to like build upon what is already there, improve upon what's already there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I can imagine that's um, it's got to be a lot of work for the uh, product team there too. Just because again, it's such a huge, huge community, and I'm sure it's a very opinionated community too. I, I lurk on the uh, DBT Slack. I, I um, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever commented on it. I, maybe I should um, at some point, but uh, I mean, shout out to, D, to DBT too. I, I've been doing some events with them lately, and it's it's a wonderful group of people to to work with, and um, you know, really like what they're what they're up to. So huge fan. But again, I, I I'm just I guess I'm the weirdo who just doesn't contribute to the community at all. Uh, you know, I like the product a lot, but um, I don't have much to add to the conversation there. It's, I think it's everyone's doing their thing, and they know what they want, and I don't know. So. Is yeah. what it is. I, I just hit uh, one year in the company and I can just attest to the passion that the, not just the community, but the people inside, like they're nice people. Yeah. They're very passionate about building the product and experience for the customers. And you can, you can see that in like the, internally, I can see that when people talk about things, how they, how mindful they are of what they're building and what they're actually uh, giving out to customers. So it's really, it's really endearing to see that as a, as an engineer as well, that people are my, mindful of what they're building and uh they're keeping in mind that they're the tooling the software that they build is being used by people and so there's i can i can speak to that but it's mostly mostly internal stuff but like to sort of give an overview of uh how this how this company operates it's it's very driven it's very rigorous in terms of its um uh how it likes to deliver and there's a lot of people behind it and Mm -hmm. yeah i'm just I'm just excited what's what's coming next and like how we're how we're sort of shaping uh, the product for the future. Well, yeah, and I think the, the the product is also shaping you know sort of the um, the future of the industry. Maybe we can dive into that next. But you know the the data landscape is um, you know it, it's definitely evolved over the last uh, you know <laughs> decade decade plus, right? Since you know, I mean, when you got into uh, you know early work at um, you know with distributed systems at Cloudera and so forth, like uh, the industry is, uh, I would say, somewhat recognizable from that. Mostly not. I would say a lot of it's gotten simpler, but uh, you know, where, where where does it go next? What, what are your what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think about those uh, and sort of I, I try to map within my head like is it technology is it use case what is the what is the leading factor of pushing us to the future there's i think about i hear about things about big data being dead and there's a lot of chatter about like we discussed this in our last pod as well where yeah how much data do you actually use the mm-hmm. does it make sense to have these expensive tooling and i would say yes or no because it depends on the organization and so yep it's it's hard to paint the entire landscape with a single brush because there's smaller businesses, there's medium-sized companies, there's large FANG level, five, Fortune 500, who are also dealing with problems around like legacy systems. They can't just upgrade from their old their old ways of doing and just move on to the shiniest tool coming forward. So there's a lot of nuances to deal with across the industry. But I think... Um, with tooling becoming more ubiquitous, becoming more open, um, open source being de- definitely being a contributing factor to that. Um, I see a lot of people diving into understanding whether a tooling makes sense for their use cases versus just jumping into like, oh, I just need the new, new shiniest thing. 
which which kind of used to happen when I used to see in Cloudera, like, oh, we need the latest version of Spark. I'm like, why do you need it? Okay. Right. Um, I saw it and it was kind of that. So I, I'm seeing that kind of shift. Like people are actually evaluating things. People are looking at things. And this is kind of my like sense from lurking into Reddit and like these other forums where data engineering is more uh, wildly spoken about. And it's more... Um, oh, I'm evaluating these three things, which one makes sense, which one makes sense based on my use case. So I'm happy to see that shift happen, that people are focusing on what is meaningful to them, what is actually the problem they're trying to solve. And then yeah. the tooling will come and go because tooling, like you can use Spark or Flink. It won't. It, it will make a difference when you evaluate within your company what's best for your company versus just saying, I want one or the other. So the evaluation period is something that you have to focus on. And that's that's where I think the success comes in the future in data infrastructure where you can rightly pick not just the tooling, but the frameworks that actually help you build the the, the thing that you're trying to do rather than going tooling for use cases, but maybe not. So I think sure. being more mindful of the problem, more mindful of how much data, there's a lot of metrics, observability portions of that, um, how much you're actually using. So if you're tracking those things, I think it'll be valuable to see within your own company how you're using tooling, how you're, uh, because at some point in time, you'll end up with a lot of tooling. You'll have a lot of like mm-hmm. technical debt. You'll have all of those things. We can talk about technical debt as well, but there's a lot of, lot of tooling that comes in and, oh, maybe it's not purposeful anymore. We have to reshape that. So across the, the time and tenure of a data engineering team, there's a lot of things get, that go on. So you have to be sort of on track of, deduping things making sure things are working and it's i can go on and on but like the the idea is like being more um sort of be concrete of what you're building in terms of the problem you're solving rather than the tooling yeah i mean it's interesting right if you kind of harken back to the uh days the early days of big data for example right uh, you know hadoop and the whole ecosystem there i i fondly fondly remember um you know there was definitely i think a, a rush to want to try out these new tools and implement them in your organization, whether or not they made any sense, because it was like, well, it's obviously the new thing. And so we got to jump on this big data. Um, you know, so MapReduce was, you know, I, I think adopted and, and maybe in some cases it made sense. In some cases it certainly did not, uh, but it opened people's eyes to, you know, sort of the art of the possible of these, maybe a new way of thinking. Cause before you got to remember, it's like, you know, uh, I mean, the Hadoop ecosystem is open source and, um, you know, meant to run on commodity hardware. Before that, I mean, if you wanted uh, data systems, you know, MPP systems, it was like, you're going to be spending a lot of money going through a pretty atrocious sales cycle, um, you know, and uh, I don't think anyone misses those days. Uh, maybe some people do. And, and so some of the vendors certainly miss those days. You're making a lot of money back then. But, uh, you know, you, you know, and, and I, I observed the same thing with Spark, right? Spark was definitely a, uh, you know, definitely had a leg up on, uh, um on uh, you know, Hive and Hadoop and, and that whole paradigm, really. And, and so that was an exciting thing. I remember, you know, checking out uh, Spark and using it, I think, first day it came out at open source. Uh, so it was it was cool. I mean, part of it was a novelty that, yeah, this is like a, you know, in-memory system that's, you know, highly performant and, you know, let's check it out. But, you know, what, along the way, though, you know, you kind of fast forward from, what was that, 2014 or something like that when Spark uh, was first open source to today and you know that's almost 10 years now uh you know and what's what's happened along the way is i think we develop better mental models for how to think about solving data problems uh along the way the tooling has become uh, greatly abstracted to the point where it's you know it's, i mean if you want spark just it's as simple as getting a credit card and spinning it up it's not not that hard anymore like the the magic or the the headache of spinning up a spark cluster just isn't really there anymore unless you want to do that and you can um but it, you know, so so it's 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 interesting now because, like you say in Reddit, you, you have the option of evaluating three tools, and like I imagine the evaluation process is is fairly straightforward. You, you have your criteria. You couldn't do that back in the day. It would be so hard. You know, you have to spin all this stuff up, and you know, you, you weren't even sure what metrics to to check out to to, to try and evaluate it. You know, just because the, the you know, or you had your own use case. But now there's more discussion in this, and it feels like you know, this knowledge is consolidated a lot, and that's really cool to see. So. Yeah, I agree. I, I, even it's, uh, something as simple as using Docker Compose is, is very easy to deploy and just have it in your system. Oh, I'm testing a bunch of things at the same time. Yeah, go crazy because it's yeah. it's much, much easier than having to 
take a trial of some vendor or some right. other thing and then just look at, okay, does this make sense? But it doesn't cover all the use cases in like a beta or a preview. And we, we touched upon Spark, but Spark is a beast. It takes a lot to get successful with Spark in terms oh, of... Yeah. It is very powerful. You get the the tooling that you need. You get all that uh, all the jazz underneath. You get SQL, you get Python, Scala, whatever, in terms of API. But building a universe around that, building an ecosystem around that, it takes a lot of effort. There's a lot of like infrastructure costs, whether running on Kubernetes, EMR, you're running on any any sort of uh, whatever your execution layer is. And there's also building that sort of abstraction around how to deliver it to your your customers, your internal customers in this case, and making sure they're understanding what they can uh, what they can use and how much debuggability they have, how much diagnosis they can do, because Spark is, is also a tuning-heavy system in terms of how can I tune memory, how can I tune uh, sort of CPU, how these other parameters. There's mm-hmm. a lot of configuration buttons that you can use. A lot. And it can get overwhelming. It did It did for a lot of people, myself included, mm-hmm. at some point in time. Sure. But um, it's... Uh, it's how you get these tools internally and making them uh, used in the right way and also hiding away the cruft that is powering them. Like they, you don't want your engineers to understand or data scientists or whoever your customers is know where it's running and be bothered about resource allocation, be worried about memory or running out of memory and having best practices not being followed. Like if somebody's doing bad things in their code, you should have enough like sort of training or examples to tell them like, okay, don't follow this. This is an anti-pattern. So it's a lot of a mix of abstractions and making sure things are hid away and the craft is hid away to get people to succeed in these tooling rather than just the tooling themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it really feels like too, it's, it's the, um, what's also improved is just, uh, again, sort of the knowledge around, best practices. Um, like I always found that knowledge was the biggest gap with a lot of um, implementations, right? So even if you had great tooling, it's like, do you know how to use it? Do you have a, a playbook for your team in terms of like, what are you trying to do? And, um, you know, just how are you going to leverage these tools to their fullest capabilities? And that's, you know, now you can go on Reddit, like you say, and there's a million different opinions on it. And, and a lot of them are pretty good, right? It's, it's not a total dumpster fire. Um, you know, you go on DBT Slack and People are asking great questions uh, and, you know, they have great comments and I think people just really understand, you know, the, the kind of the underlying patterns as well as, you know, the, um, the tool itself. Documentation certainly helps. I think DBT, for example, the documentation is quite amazing. And that's, that's, I've always found like that this knowledge and level setting is one of the cruxes of, of getting adoption and being successful, you know, either as a technology vendor or, you know, adopting technologies. And so... Yeah, so, I, otherwise you have to I figure out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can very, very, really attest to that because when I joined Stitch Fix, uh, my the the customers that our team was responsible for were data scientists who came from academia, who had mm. very little to no experience with Spark or have not seen it. And so I used to run office hours with uh, with some newer data scientists who joined the team, and even like older ones who were sort of who have adopted Spark. And just like, hey, let's address the problems you're seeing. Can, they, can we look at the ETL you're writing? Can we look at pa- patterns? So I had to do a lot of knowledge transfer there because I was early day Spark, but uh, I didn't know a lot of the things in the usability side, like how people are actually deploying and how we're using it. In the lens of like Cloudera customers, yes, but like how it's happening in a data science perspective, how it's happening in uh, in some other um, form and uh, form of use case, but. So that was also a learning for me when I came in. Okay, not just like imparting knowledge, but like understanding how people are using it and the understanding the usage patterns and then diving into concerns. Okay, people are concerned it's running out of memory. They don't know how much to tune. So we set defaults. We set easy defaults that people can just hit the ground running. And so they don't have to worry about them. Some user errors kept popping up. So we had to clean those up, making sure debuggability is easy. So we through a history server behind them. So all of those like came out of conversations and feedback we got from our users and we adapted to those concerns. And so uh, learning from that, we took surveys, we did all those um, like internal conversations where they were the, where the data scientists back then were my customers were very sort of passionate and like sort of gave us the right feedback. Oh, this is not working for me. I think this is, this could be done better. And there was always a race whether 
sometimes the data scientists would go and build off some sort of abstractions by themselves. And so we had to catch up sometimes. And so uh, we had to catch those trends a little bit more sooner than it became an actual tool on its own. And so that was kind of a race we had to fight with, with these seriously technical people who were passionate about the product and wanted to build something to ease their own sort of misery in some, in some ways. <laughs> it's really cool that you're paying attention to the users though, right? I think it, all too often the engineers want to just focus on the engineering that they're focused on, but it's, um, data has a life cycle, right? And it's sort of like you have stakeholders and, and, and people who are depending on whatever you're supporting and it's 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 rare actually to see that right so at least in my experience i don't know but maybe your experience might be different so it's it's good to think about that because that's who you're building for and that's like engineering in my view like i i view engineering as solving problems for somebody or like solving problems for whoever's whoever's going to benefit out of that and having that sort of check in your head that Oh, I'm solving it for this. How will this person perceive the software that I write? That empathy with, in terms of debuggability, in terms of how they how easy and ergonomic it is to use it. Is it intuitive? All those sort of concerns they might not like sort of fly in your face when you're building the first MVP, but it's good to be mindful of them across the life cycle of building, not just software, but like data data tooling, data infrastructure. Sure. That am I building the right thing, and am I building it right? Hmm. That's a really mature perspective. Um, and kind of leads into something that I, I think is on your mind too, which is uh, like career growth as an engineer. Um, I mean, walk me through that. What what's um, what are some of the key, the key things that you've been thinking about uh, with respect to career growth? Yeah, that's a. I don't know if I have a traditional answer for that, but uh, the one thing I, is fine too. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the but the thing that I've observed over my career has been, uh, at least I've been uh, I've been in startups all my life, so I I've only known that sort of um, way of building software, those problems and things that you have to solve in a smaller setting, but. To kind of my advantage, it helped me grow a little bit more faster than I would possibly in a larger company because what I did when I when I started Stitchfix, it was it was a new paradigm shift for me. So I I had to sort of like learn Python, learn Scala very uh, very quickly. I used to do a little Java and a little Scala back in Cloud Era, but this is sort of a, a mindset change for me, and I was very eager to solve a lot of problems. And what I kept doing was asking for more responsibilities, asking for more things to own and contribute to. And that's sort of the way I kind of learned. I learned by doing. And okay, let me take up this. If I don't know, I'll ask. So I kind of built that sort of um, muscle uh, across the data landscape by just doing things. Like, okay, let me let me look at helping solve GDPR, like or part of it mm. or something. And so that sort of, the the disciplines that I have today took a long time to build. And that came from asking and being more uh, sort of in the forefront and saying, I want these things. I, I Can I do this? Can I do this? And I don't know if that's like an, a typical approach you can uh, you can use in a company, but we were small enough that there were no uh, people uh, to do a lot of those things. So a person owned a lot of the different pieces together, or at least were responsible for a domain. Like I was responsible for a lot of things, Spark, Hive, and Iceberg. But there was others who were like sort of in a more supporting role, but they were in charge of something else. So it was kind of this seven people team who had to figure out seven people towards the end when I joined. But we were like, for the most time, we were like four or five. And so we had our own areas of expertise. And I sort of went deeper into Spark, went deeper into Hive, um, and then later Iceberg. Uh, these are the sort of the large themes. But around them, I solved problems around metadata, management, uh, your um privacy laws, you have uh, data quality, you had all these things around that. And I sort of went along problem first and then how how to fit those with the tooling that we had or we had to build new tooling. So that, that mindset came from that experience itself. And so that helped me grow, like going to leading projects to, I, I don't want to bog down the titles because it's different across the, but it's, sure. it's the responsibility and the impact you have across your career that determines how fast you grow, how slowly you grow. And that's that's kind of also a, um, 
hurts people because they don't get to have an impact in in every scenario. Like in a large company or even a smaller company, maybe you don't have the opportunity to do high visibility work or high sort of impactful work. And you're just like keeping the lights on. You're doing something mm-hmm. like making sure things are, uh, are running smoothly. And that's valuable work, but it doesn't get sometimes the, the limelight that it should. And so that's why this kind of process of promotions and growth is kind of broken in my view. It's like it's not measuring mm-hmm. the right rubric. It's not measuring... Typically, it's not measuring the right impact in terms of uh, what the person does, how the person achieves it, and what decisions mm-hmm. the person did. The person grow? Are they are they can be can they be entrusted with more responsibility? And that's where that trust factor takes a lot of time to build. And how you build it is is very organizational specific, very like company specific. And that that kind of part kind of bothered me. Even at Stitch Fix, like there was no mm-hmm. exact rubric to follow in terms of growth. Like I got promotions, but I didn't know why I did. Like, what did I do something different? Am I ready for another level? And so those questions kind of shaped uh, my thinking that, okay, it's the impact. It's the actual uh, work that you're doing and people are noticing. And so I think it's not perfect. I've seen horrible promotion cycles where it was Mm. not clear what I improved on. And I didn't like that. Like I wanted the feedback to say, okay, I didn't do something's right. I wanted, uh, I did something right. And so promotions can be a good thing, but it takes in larger companies. I've seen, I read blogs about people struggling with promotions. They couldn't get the committee to agree. And so to, to just sort of summarize all of this, I think it just depends on the impact and the accountability that you can deliver in your company and be how, and how much that sort of contributes to not necessarily dollar value, but the, the sort of the thing that you're solving and how, how easy it makes a problem or it solves something for a customer. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, promotions are insanely tricky, I would say, because it's like, even if you're a manager of a data team or a tech team, for example, or manager of any team, uh, tech or otherwise, it's, you know, you have your own opinions on how things should work. HR has its opinions, uh, leadership and the board has its opinions. And so the, the questions I would always ask my teams <clears throat> when I was managing them was, um, you know, it's maybe a bit controversial, but I'm like, okay, so like, what, what do you want your next job to be after this one? Right. Um, you know, and the, the classic question, like, you know, what do you, what do you want to be doing in a few years? You know, and I always try and orient, um, you know, my employees, uh, um, you know, growth or at least, um, you know, this, the stuff they're working on, you know, as much as they can try and orient it towards something that they're stoked on, um, and that will, they think will help them in, in their career. Cause inevitably, you know, you, there's no such thing as lifetime employment. So the only thing I feel I can do is provide people a mechanism to, to get what they want. Well, you know, I get what I want. The company gets what they want. Um, you know, and if those can be aligned as, as tightly as possible, then that's great. Um, cause otherwise people, if you, you know, obviously it's, it's a business and sometimes people need to work on things they don't want to work on. That's the reality of it. And so you definitely have to balance that. Cause you don't want it to be, a uh, kind of a free for all. Um, but I always found like aligning incentives, um, and, and people's sort of inherent goals, um, was at least one way to, um, you know, at least keep them motivated to progress in their careers. And, and so I, I can't say that maybe that's the best way to do it. And it totally depends on the type of company you're at. But, um, but I always like to get those questions out up front. Like, what do you want to do after this job? You know, cause everyone has that everyone's views a job as a stepping stone to something else, whether they admit it or not, that is the case. Um, you know, maybe they want it, you know, so try and help people get what they want out of the job that they're hired to do. You know, I think they're, they're going to hopefully put a, you know, more of their best self forward, but sometimes they don't, that also happens. So it's uh, hiring and, and promotions and that whole thing is just, it's a very tricky thing. I, I swear it's a coin flip on a good day. So you just never know. And the thing is things happen with people too. Like, you could, you know, it could be the best candidate coming in and just something happens in their life, you know, midway through and it's just, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, you know, I, I remember one guy, um, you know, sort of an opposite uh, thing where he was, he wasn't performing at all, you know, and he, and he came, he came highly recommended as a great engineer, but he, you know, some days he would be late, some days he wouldn't show up. And I had to say like, look, dude, like <laughs> this continues. Um, I mean, we're gonna have to part ways. It just, it is what it is. You know, but then he told me is, um, you know, his, uh, his spouse actually didn't want him going to work. And I'm just like, okay, that's interesting. Cause this is actually about the time I was about to uh, let him go. And then he, uh, 
He's like, I'm going through a lot of problems right now. And I'm like, okay, I mean, you don't need to tell me many details, but I'm here, I'm here for you, man. I mean, this is a, you know, cause I know you're talented. I know you're smart and capable, but you know, I'd love to see you progress to, you know, something bigger and better in your career, but you know, stuff like this is going to hold you back no matter where you work at. So let's, you know, um, so I was just there as a sounding board. Again, I'm not going to get involved in personal stuff, but he ended up, you know, making some changes in his life and he ended up becoming a director, you know, and he, uh, so, I mean, things, things could happen too. Um, but you just, you just never know what's going on with people, you know, nor is it your job to really dig into that. I mean, it's personal business, but that's sort of the, the weird balance with promotions is, um, you know, there's, there's factors outside of work too, that just influence people. Um, and COVID especially like kind of ripped the bandaid off on that one. Cause you know, people just went through all kinds of, you know, inner stuff that, you know, just sort of came out. So, yeah. I, I see that we're all fighting a battle within our own selves. Like we're we're <clears throat> battling aspects in our own life. We're and there's a mask that we wear to work. I, yeah, I kind of see that. And you, I think I heard it in your podcast with Zach or some some other one that uh, tech is a mm-hmm. meat grinder. It's like it takes Envy. a lot out of you, and that's where like the the empathy factor comes in. When I I mentioned it earlier, but you kind of hit the hit the nail on the head with that. Because it's it's understanding what, not just to direct reports, but like what people are going through and mm-hmm. be mindful of that and giving them space to either recover or make sure they get the right help they need and be successful. Because everybody operates differently. Everybody has their own style uh, of working, has their own, uh, their own way of doing things. And I think you have to trust them to do it in the, in the way that they can be more productive. Like sometimes I I don't work all afternoon. Sometimes I just go to sleep if I if I can't. I just like work later in the evening. So as long as I'm doing the work, I I I think my manager doesn't have a problem. Like he's pretty sensible, and my teammates sometimes do that, and it's it's totally fine. So as long as you have that autonomy and trust within your within your employees within your teammates, I think that can go a long way for just building a healthy org and building a healthy team and just like sort of that will result in a healthy org, but continuing the development of your, uh, of the per- person in question and also the, the org itself. So you yeah. know that you're doing this by, uh, you're doing this right by them, them and the, and the business itself, that you're trusting them to get the work done. And so that's where, that's where I see even like taking vacations, taking time off. That's very personal. It's like, okay, just take the time you need to recover, take the time you need to, um be okay to do your job i think essentially and that's and that's where i think um that's where good orgs succeed in being where they are because you can build products if you have good people if you have people who Mm -hmm. can who you can entrust with that fact of oh they will they will get the job done they will do the the thing that's needed uh but i need to impart trust and I, i and i think another bigger aspect of not just managers or tech leads or any other sort of leadership role it's sort of unblocking people is also another aspect mm, of their role and it one. should be that can I remove the barriers that is stopping them from being successful? That can be org processes, that can be anything else, tooling. Um, those are aspects that sort of go unsaid um, or, or seldomly said uh, as, as part of this, but I view that as, I, I joked around this once, like it's uh, as you go higher, it's unblocking as a service. Uh, oh, unlocking yeah. others as a service uh, is, is is mostly your role than like just going and coding stuff. It's like can you remove oh, the barriers? Can you remove, can you remove the barriers for people to be successful, uh, or like, not allowing people to be successful? And can you help them to do um, the thing that they can effectively? Hmm. Yeah, that's that's super true, and I, I think it's advice for uh, you know, especially engineers out there that are listening to this. You know. Uh, there's kind of two tracks you can take in your career that you can, um, you know, maybe become a principal or staff engineer. That's certainly one. Um, and if you're really good at engineering and you don't want to manage people, that, that's certainly a, a route you can take. If you want to, the other path is obviously management. Traditionally, that's always been kind of the path to, you know, moving up the ladder, so to speak. But it, it really feels like, I mean, my personal observation is most people probably shouldn't manage, um, like it is a different skill set, and the and the problem that I have with how management works at a lot of companies is individual contributors who are great at their job are thrown into management. There's no training about how to be a great manager. It's just like, well, obviously, since you're great at um, coding and developing systems, 
that automatically means you're going to be a great manager, which is a horrible fallacy. Um, you know, but that's, that unfortunately is, you know, the, the career progression traditionally, if you wanted to make more money, not just in tech, but in any field, really, it's like, you know, you move into management and that's, um, that's how it is. But again, I, what I see lacking in that is people are thrown into management, um, and maybe they could be great managers that they're, they're, they're set up to fail typically. So me how many management classes, uh, or management training, um, or even books people are provided to, to help them become better managers. Right. I, I, I've rarely seen that. So, yeah, I, I don't know where I'll end up, but I'm, I, I like to say to the state of the IC track because I, I like being closer to the technical side of things, yeah. like being closer to the problem, um, like solving them at a higher level, whatever level I'll even go and write the thing. It's, it's that, that part of me that's, I don't think that'll go away. And so, um, I think the skill to be a good manager takes time to develop. And I don't know if people, tend to get successful uh, as they start. But like eventually, assuming you have the training, you have the resources to be successful, or you have mentorship, which is another big aspect of engineering big that point. I want to, that I, I don't know why people don't talk about it. But that also helps you sort of, or guide you in a way that you can be successful in the role that is being an IC or a manager so doesn't, 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 so manage, doesn't manage. Yeah, essentially. And uh, yeah, it, it's... Like those are parallel tracks, if you will, like IC and manager. It's just different ways of influencing the org, I would say. At a principal level, I, I spoke to one Amazon guy and he was telling his old job is just talking to VPs and product managers and just setting expectations in different places. That's it. And he doesn't do a lot of coding, but moving the team and the org in a technical direction is another harder piece. Like how do you influence people? How do you use that influence to get technical decisions or work done? And that's where I think the the higher levels sort of operate at. It's more like, uh, can you tell me what to do or tell me not what to do or tell me what not to do? And that's where the struggle lies of how do you develop that mm. skill? And I learned by doing so. I've learned a lot of like, I've hit a lot of failures and like, okay, wait, this is not how you do it. This is how you do it. And so I right. keep those things in mind as we, as we decide things and as, as we progress. But uh, But yeah, it's either track is harder i would say uh, it's not like it's a bed of roses for each of them but and more recently with all these layoffs i think people are rethinking that sort of manager ic mm. paradigm and seeing who's more suitable to be a manager i think the recent layoffs have sort of uh just uh, demonstrated that because they've thinking like how is hierarchy going to work how is going to be how is mm. everybody going to be more effective not sure I agree with all of that because I, I, it's very org specific. They might see more signals than they project outside, but it's all about uh, how how can can you get the work done? Can you get it get it in a reasonable capacity to make sure that you're delivering to the to the bottom line? I think how you structure your org is very specific to a company, but yeah, it's you mentioned about people shouldn't be managers that that's something that that also should be evaluated like are they trained enough to be a manager do they have mm -hmm. the capacity and the resources to be successful right yeah and it's it's one of these things where again that's that's why i asked the question you know what like what do you want to do like what does your career look like to you like because that's that's super key because you, you if you dig into that question is like you figure out does somebody actually want to be a manager or not i mean i know plenty of people including you know, people very close to me that, you know, had the opportunity, um, you know, to run a company, uh, you know, that, that, that was the, the path their boss wanted for them. And they said, I really don't think I want to do that. You know, I don't think I'm cut out to be a leader. And, and I think you, it's just, you gotta be honest with yourself, but you know, but if, if you ask people, okay, so like what, just honestly, like, what do you want out of your, out of your career? Some people don't want to be managers. They, they want to take the IC route and there's nothing wrong with that. Don't let people tell you that, because you want to be an IC, you know, you're, you're a lesser, you know, human being or an employee. That's, I think, the farthest thing from the truth. But the thing is, you know, a lot of, um, you know, you know, popular business publications and, and um, you know, in the press, I mean, it, it, all too often what they do is, you know, it, the, the management and being an executive is sort of lauded as a, you know, sort of the pinnacle of a career. So if you choose not to go that path and obviously you know there's there must be something wrong with you and i, I think it's just it's it's really disturbing because again like from my experience like just it's true a lot of people shouldn't be managers that's you know that's just how it is um 
I mean, I don't know how else to say it in a you know <laughs> diplomatic way, but it's just it's just not the job for people for for a lot of people. I mean, it's very hard. It's like herding cats. You got to be a diplomat. Um, you know, you're not going to be doing the IC work. So why do you want to do that job, right? It's a, it's actually a really hard job to do well. Um, you know, you have to you have to put other people before you. Hopefully, if you don't, then you're kind of a bad manager, in my opinion. Um, but that's that's just it's just goes against a lot of natural human tendencies. Um, you know, and so it's it's very difficult. It's it's not for everybody, and you're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way, as you point. It's like school of hard knocks. You know, you learned a lot of stuff, and you know that that's the other thing. Do you want to put yourself through that? But I don't know. That's that's your call at the end of the day. But that's. But I, I just hope that people, you know, one of the big takeaways is understanding that being an IC, there's, there's, it's absolutely, I think, an applaudable position to be in, you know, that you should, yeah. and hopefully that, you know, more and more that's, that's recognized as a, as a viable path. So. Yeah. I remember my, my manager Stitch Fix, I had just one manager for the course of the five years, but so we were very tight and uh, almost very candid with each other. And so he was, he used to ask at every sort of promotion conversation that's like, what is your long-term goal? Like, what do you want to be? Mm-hmm. And then even if you get this next level, what are you going to achieve? Like, is it, is it something you want? What, what is the, the next path after getting that? So I, uh, my answer has always been like, I want to grow. I want to learn more things, be more responsible for more things. And what I'm, <clears throat> what I'm sort of putting that in, in perspective now with having done this in a couple of years uh, in the sort of tech leadership role, it's, it's how selfless you can be. I, mm. I addressed this about unblocking others, but um, how selfless can be and not think of like, what am I going to achieve versus like, what what is the team going to achieve? Right. And that sort of, sort of fits in with the manager role as well, but I see it more as in, a, in my capacity because how can I make it easier for somebody else in my team and just not think about what I'm doing? Like right. there's this notion of snacking and doing like the most tiniest work just to get code out there. I don't do that. I do that if if it's needed, if it's like gonna, if somebody's blocked or like somebody needs my help. But I don't do that as a on a regular basis because that's that's not something I am I want to do and is the best use of my time. And so that's where the difference comes as you. And I read this from books. This is not my original idea or something. I think it's like where Larson spoke about it, um, and that's sort of the guiding book I kind of read when I when I started. But it a lot of those points sort of resonated and kind of make sense now um with and that's essentially it it's uh with the with management comes a different challenge with ic work it comes a different challenge and it's all perspective it's all personal it's i've learned people who have terminal titles who have been there and just that for the rest of their career they don't want to do more they don't want to do less they're happy they're found their happy place and that's okay like whatever you do they they sometimes say no to promotions. They're like, oh, I don't want this other uh, other role because I'm happy what I'm doing. So let me do that. And th- these larger companies have this. Like in Amazon, I think the senior senior software engineer is a terminal title because there's a lot of people in there and it's a heavy role in se- as such. And people just don't want to move from there. And that's that's okay. It's it's acceptable. I don't think there's any kind of stigma or peer pressure that needs to be applied to any of right. these things because irrespective of what the publications say. I think it's very personal and it should be because these things are hard roles. These are not trivial roles that you can just, oh, I'll move up, I'll be better, I'll be whatever. No, there's imposter syndrome that comes in there. There's child, different kind of challenges. There's, it's, it's, it's demonstrably harder as you progress in your career because you have more responsibility, you have more influence, you have more, uh, not necessarily people uh, working with you, but it's, it's just harder. So some people don't want that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're comfortable with what they're doing. Totally fine. Totally fine. Totally fine. Kind of uh, finishing out, you mentioned that um, uh, before the show that you you have a, a data platform series on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. I started writing a little bit about like uh, what exactly data platform would look like if I would build it today. And it's kind of from lessons I learned while building it at Stitch Fix and um, starting from like first principles and seeing if you would build a team. And it got me thinking about what decisions you would make at different sort of levels. So I'm like at mm. part six now and I maybe have three more parts, but I'll, I want to write like longer form as well because in LinkedIn you just allow that many characters. Uh, so I have to literally be brief. But the idea behind that was, uh, 
sort of sharing some things that I learned and paying it forward, but also um, showcasing that you have to think very meaningfully about the present and the future while making these decisions, because these are larger uh, team-oriented decisions around building infrastructure. And so how do you think about that? How do you reason about that? How do you build the right tooling and abstractions? So I'm covering those aspects about um, whether a not necessarily a tool, but how do you think about data quality? How do you think about mm-hmm. reading and writing data? Does that, what does that encapsulate? How do you ingest data? And so these and security is, uh, is another big thing. So thinking about all those as you go out and build these, other ways to do it, you can go purchase a vendor who's doing doing all this for you. That's totally fine. Companies operate that way. They don't have the skill set to do this. That's totally fine. You can just rely on somebody to do that for you. But if you thought about building it from from scratch, I always explored it as, okay, how would I do it? How would I think about these problems? Mm-hmm. How do I, uh, what kind of principles I would apply to designing this and architecting this and what considerations I would take and decisions I would make. So yeah, um, just started riffing on that and became like six parts now. So there's more parts I have to, have to add. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I want to write more ro- longer form on my Substack or something, but it's uh, it's sort of progressing in a way that is covering different aspects of it. Like the last one being, uh, I believe, uh, data read and write and data, like, I'm blanking at this point, but like data read and write, I think was the last one. Yeah, that's cool. What's been the response to uh, the series? Uh, I mean... Uh, engagement impressions, of course, but, uh, but yeah, people are just like, yeah, uh, a lot of likes, I would say, I don't know how to characterize those in like how, what kind of impact it has had, but, um, but yeah, I've got questions. I've got, uh, people asking about, oh, are you going to think about data transformation? Are you going to think about this other topic? Mm. And so I'm sort of feeding those into those as well, but the limited characters I have with LinkedIn is kind of hurting to summarize these things. So I might write the longer form articles to, yeah, maybe to summarize that. Yeah. I'm going to restart some of that, uh, those posts because it's hard to actually cover every use case and you realistically cannot. Like if you talk about even Postgres, right. there's a lot of things you can do with Postgres. Sure. S3 is something you can do, but like covering all of that is almost impossible in a, in a short form. But, but yeah, I'm going to see how that, uh, how that pans out and uh, see where that takes me. Careful, you might be uh, writing a book soon. So. <laughs> I'll hit you up if that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, that's kind of how these things go. You start with the uh, yeah, social, sort of the catnip, and then you move into uh, you know, longer form blog posts. And before you know it, you have enough, uh, you, you thought about the topic enough that you want to write a book about it, right? And so that's, uh, that's how it goes for some people. Um, you know, and, and, but it's cool you're doing this. I, I think it's just because the... Um, a lot of these things need to be discussed, right? And and I and I and I think again, it kind of goes back to the the body of knowledge and the, the maturity of the mental models we're developing as an industry. And it's people like yourself who are putting these ideas out there. And I think just and getting these ideas out there, I would say, you know, without you know um, hesitation, really. Uh, I think that's that's a key thing. I talk to enough people, you know, and they they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to talk about this. I'm like, why don't you just go talk about it? Like, what what's that risk here? Seriously, <laughs> like. You know, it's nothing. It's nothing controversial, really. And even if it is, like this is what these need to be discussed. That's how the field goes forward. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I hesitated a bit when I before I started writing more publicly. Is that like how is mm. how is it going to be perceived? Are people going right. to like, uh, like call me out on things? And it's the rep- response has been mostly positive. People have just been yeah. curious about. Hey, how this works? The security one got a lot of vendors poking in. They were like, "Hey, mm. we do this, we do erasure, we do sure. this." I'm like, oh, that's <laughs> nice. And so there's a lot of like um, sort of side conversations that can come out of that. And and this this kind of even came out of the our our Monday morning data chat pieces where you were where people were asking about how do you think data strategy in a startup. And that kind of got mm. me thinking into okay, how would I build a product for a startup, and how would I how would I reason go reasoning about if I was one of the first engineers uh, right. in that space? And yes, there, there's sort of that um, hesitation that people have uh, about putting out content, putting out sort of technical specific things because the community is 
usually positive, but like sometimes they tear you apart. Like it's it it can be one or the other. There's, I've not mm-hmm. seen that, but I've seen nicer engagements with people and uh, like people like uh, if people say, "Hey, this is incorrect," I go and modify it. I just like, "Hey, okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. I I got it wrong. You called me up for." So it's it's good feedback. It's it's how you learn. It's um, acceptable. There's no hate or any kind of like controversy that can generate out of these things. It's mostly technical topics that people are very passionate about. So I tend to write more about that and I sprinkle a lot of memes here and there so to keep people yeah. laughing. But <laughs> it's uh, it it's generally that that piece that is uh, not just paying it forward, but actually putting it out there and like, hey, does it resonate? Does it help anybody? That's just it. Yeah. Get the, get the ideas out. out, right? Yeah, yeah, and see where it lands. I think it's the most important thing. Because again, it's like social posts like on LinkedIn, Twitter, it's like it's such a... Um, there's some effort involved, but again, it's not like writing a blog post, right? So the whole thing I like to do is just test out ideas. I like to troll a lot these days too. Um, like I had one on a prompt engineering as a new data science or some poll like that. More to, you know, just to, to even see if the idea lands. And I got a lot of impressions and a lot of uh, votes so far, which I thought was kind of incredible. But that was that was a pure joke. That was not meant as a serious question. But people are like... I don't understand what prompt engineering, how that fits in. And I'm like, that's cool. I mean, you know, let's get the discussion going. Because the thing is, what's a joke today is a serious thing tomorrow, right? Um, you know, and so that's part of the motivation to see, okay, it's so like where, what ideas are resonating with people right now? You know, uh, and so I, I don't know, maybe I'm just at a certain point where I just, I just don't care anymore. I'll just post whatever. But I think it's, a, it's an interesting spot to be in for precisely that reason, because you can, a lot of these ideas you put out there, you know, um, and yourself, me and a lot of other people, but it's like, you just never know what's going to stick. Um, you know, so that, that's part of the fun of it. And, and again, once you get past that initial hesitation, it's like the, the, the world's your oyster. Now it's just like, you know, you're just posting all kinds of crazy stuff pretty soon. And, uh, that's the fun of it. You know, they're just ideas. It's, it's, you know, they all add to each other. It all adds to the discussion. Um, and again, the, the the fact is is like you always got to reserve. There's like ten percent of people out there that are just going to hate you, no matter what you do, no matter what you say. I think people hated Mother Teresa. That's just how it was. Even though she was like a very nice person and did a lot of good in the world, I think there were people that didn't like her either. So if if she has haters, then I'm pretty sure like you and I are we're going to get some criticism, and that's just that's how it is. So yeah, you know, I try to not think about a lot of those things because it's it's like it's part of life like you'll it is even if like you look at the larger i don't want to get more philosophical in this but like we're a speck of dust in the universe it's like nothing we're just like oh cool hand posting on it it doesn't matter it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things it It really doesn't yeah so i I tend to not overthink those things but yeah it's um it's interesting to see how like uh, the other sort of thing i have is i try to learn more languages like i recently mm. taught myself golang sometimes of the year for work and so that i built some of the muscle there and i'm i recently picked up rust so i'm doing nice. like rust uh, i've sort of completed my two, like sort of half the rust book so i'm seeing like Jeez. different patterns about just like uh, it's just the the rust book that helps you with examples so it's like just understanding cool. writing if loops writing whatever sorry for loops and conditions and those kinds of things and my manager is a rust nerd so him and i talk mm. about it so there's a that's lot awesome. of like uh we uh, so that's kind of like the motivation i have and and i've not touched a lower level language since 2008 i think when i studied c plus plus in undergrad so yeah. i'm key to know what is happening below the like, sort of the like sort of higher level languages and i want to see how things are built how memory allocation is happening how do you actually free up space and I know this conceptually, but I want to be more thoughtful of those. So my dream is to build a database out of that. <laughs> so at some That's point cool. in time, but, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But I'm sort of the, uh, adding those skill sets to, to think think about those things more meaningfully. That's pretty awesome. I mean, again, that's another aspect of career progression, right? It's just, I think, a natural curiosity and continuous learning. And that's another key to how to get ahead. So um well, cool. I know we're, we're coming up on time. Um, you know, great having you on. Uh, great discussion. I, I always feel like I, I learn a lot talking to you. So um, that's awesome. For, for people who want to, uh, I guess, learn more about you and, your, and what you're up to, how can they do that? Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, this was great. I, I enjoyed our 
previous chat and this is um this yeah. is equally equally fun so i learned a lot of the things talking to more people like you and so it's very endearing but yeah uh to connect uh linkedin is the best place i usually post there more uh twitter is mostly memes and like it's all linked there so if you go to my linkedin page you'll see all those all those links off of that i yeah mostly that and i i, I want to get back to substack so there's this hysterical is the substack that i write but I haven't I haven't touched that in a in a few months. It's so. good though. It's a really good Substack. Yeah, I've been behind on posts, so it's uh, I've mostly been testing content on on LinkedIn. So I have to I have to get more regular on that part. But uh, but yeah, those things. LinkedIn is easier, and links you can feed off from there. So that's pretty. Ooh, well, awesome. Um, well, again, I uh, hope to chat with you again. Um, maybe see you at a DBT event or something like that. So, uh, yeah, thanks for being on the uh, on the pod. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. So, yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.